Well, let's turn together to Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 1, it's right in the middle of the Minor Prophets. It's six houses to the right of the book of Daniel. Micah chapter 1. One of the delights of the Advent season is the reminder that our faith in Christ is not some invention that dropped out of nowhere, asking millions of people to believe the bizarre supposed experiences of one man. Islam is based completely on the belief that one man, Muhammad, received visions from the angel Gabriel beginning in about the year 610. In 563 BC, a boy named Siddhartha Gautama was born to an extremely wealthy family. But Gautama rejected the life of privilege and instead he took on a life of asceticism, of self-denial. And on one occasion, he went 49 straight days with meditation. And after that, he proclaimed himself as the Enlightened One or the Buddha. And Buddhism was founded. Mormonism is founded entirely on the supposed visions of Joseph Smith in the early 1800s, beginning at the age of 14. Millions of people following a teenager. He was told in these visions that no church on earth actually represented the true faith in God and that he would be the founder of the true church. Jesse Duplantis, founder of Jesse Duplantis Ministries, is a false teacher who has built a media and supposed ministry empire, making millions and millions of dollars for himself, all based on leading people to believe that he's taking these trips to heaven and talk to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jesus all personally. We're supposed to believe one man. But when Jesus, God in the flesh, when he came to the earth, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, that event was foretold in general terms, going all the way back to Genesis 3 and getting more and more specific all throughout the Old Testament. The Apostle Peter explains that the prophets of the Old Testament predicted Christ all in different eras, all in different situations, most of whom didn't even live at the same time. Peter explains it this way in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Our faith is not a blind faith. The coming of Christ has been predicted literally for thousands of years. And in that spirit of anticipation, I'd like to spend our Advent season looking at what I'll call ancient anticipation. Ancient anticipation is really just a, giving us a small taste of a few key prophecies concerning the first coming, the first advent of Christ. I think that this series will be an important reminder to us from Isaiah 46.10 that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. And so throughout this season, together we're going to look at the virgin birth of Christ, 
We'll look at the official forerunner of Jesus. We'll look at the miraculous ministry of Jesus. We'll look at the unique priesthood of Jesus. And on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the humble presentation of Jesus. But for our time this morning, I'd like to examine the birthplace of Jesus. Maybe one of the most familiar prophecies. Now, we're beginning in Micah chapter 1, but let me just read the focus of our thoughts this morning. You don't have to turn there. We'll be there soon enough. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. The hymn that we just sung, and I was 100% certain Darren would plan that hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It pictures the birthplace of Christ. Interestingly, it's just a, it's a little town just south of Jerusalem, about five miles, and it rightly paints the picture of a peaceful setting surrounding the birth of our Savior. God had come to earth as a baby. This birthplace is prophesied in Micah 5, verse 2, confirmed in Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. But the peace and the tranquility of Micah 5, verse 2 itself is surrounded by a much bigger vision of exactly how God would bring peace to the whole earth and the role that Messiah, the King, would play. So I'd actually like to take a bit of time to orient you to the actual prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2. Micah 1, verse 1. The word of Yahweh which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he beheld concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, a little bit younger, but he was ministering in the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied just before and just after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Now, being from this little tiny village of Moresheth, Micah sympathized with the peasant working class, those who were just the day laborers. They were often being oppressed in Micah's day by wealthy landowners, by the powerful elite, because the the powerful were ignoring the law of God concerning being a vibrant, caring, unified, loving community of faith. So the main message of the book, as indicated in Micah 3, verse 8, was to declare to Israel, in this particular case, meaning the southern kingdom of Judah in particular, declaring to them the injustice of their society. They were disregarding the covenant God had made with them. They were ignoring the law. They were committing covenant treachery against God. And so Micah will call out against this injustice, particularly against the underprivileged, which should never have been happening. The law of God was set up that if you obey the law, compassion and help rules the day. If the wealthy and the leadership aren't, aren't corrupt, then there's no poverty, there's no lack, there's no need. Micah cries out specifically against those who are powerful, devising ways to take fields, take houses away from those in their power. In chapter 2, Micah cries out against the rulers of Israel, looking the other way for their own enrichment. He calls many of the rulers in chapter 3, you who hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and who eat the flesh of my people. Micah cries out against the corrupt legal system which was self-protecting judges taking bribes, priests getting rich, false prophets giving prophecies for money. In chapter 3, 
All the while, the wealthy and the elite were saying, Micah 3.11, is not Yahweh in our midst? Evil will not come upon us. Micah's prophecies are basically divided into three sections, three topics. And this really helps us set the scene for the Bethlehem prophecy. In chapters 1 and 2, the first section we could call Judah's punishment and future restoration. Judah's punishment and future restoration. Micah's first oracle in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, gives us an image of a courtroom. And this courtroom is announced from the Lord's heavenly temple. Micah 1, verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, give heed, O earth, as well as its fullness, and let Lord Yahweh be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, Yahweh is going forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel." What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, planting places for a vineyard, and I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. And all of her graven images will be smashed, and all of her earnings will be burned with fire. And all of her idols I will make desolate, for she collected them from a harlot's earnings, And to the earnings of a harlot, they will return. Samaria, mentioned here, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, is under the condemnation of God. And very shortly, Assyria would come and crush the northern kingdom. A warning is issued to the southern kingdom of Judah as well in verse 5. Then in verses 8 through 16, Micah laments the fact, he's saddened over the fact, that the judgment of God is coming to Judah. And in fact, he begins naming the towns and the cities which are in God's crosshairs. Judgment's coming to them. And in verse 13, most notably, the fortress city of Lachish is mentioned. That will become very important to us when we get to chapter 5. Then in chapter 2, Micah gives two speeches of doom. The first speech concerns the heart evil, the, the abject wickedness of the oppressor's In Judah, verse 2, or chapter 2 rather, verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness, who work out evil on their beds. When the light of the morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. And they covet fields and then tear them away, and houses and take them away. And they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The wealthy were desiring to get wealthier by taking from others. The second speech of doom Concerns the fact that the nation is ignoring the preachers, ignoring the prophets. Chapter 2, verse 6. Do not speak dripping out words, they say, while dripping out words. But if they do not drip out words concerning these things, dishonor will not be turned back. Is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of God impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? In other words, the Lord is the one doing this evil. You are. If you're doing right, you have nothing to fear from God. And so the nation now is headed toward great discipline. But as always in the minor prophets, God always tempers the coming judgment with a future promise of restoration. Verse 12 of chapter 2, 
I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. And what's this restoration going to look like? That's the second big section of Micah. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 we could call the coming messianic kingdom. The coming messianic kingdom. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, God condemns the most powerful in Judah as being corrupt, as being wicked. And so trouble is on its way. Ultimately, this will happen by the hands of the Babylonians in about a century. And listen to what God will do with Israel's elite at that point. Chapter 3, verse 4. Then they will cry out to Yahweh, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. Verses 5 through 7. Micah condemns all the false prophets, all the preachers who refused to confront sin, who only preached what the people wanted to hear. Instead of warning them about their sin. And he, he declares that all these prophets who say all is well. Or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They're going to be decimated in the judgment. Verse 6. Therefore it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will grow black over them. Now what does this mean? There'll be night for you without vision. These are men, see if this sounds familiar, who are saying, God says you're going to be fine. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to be prosperous. You're a good person. And he says, these so-called visions are going dark. Verse 7, the seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be humiliated. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there's no answer from God. In other words, those preachers are pretty irrelevant when Jerusalem was being overrun by Babylonians. But Micah, on the other hand, as a preacher of righteousness, he declares his own loyalty, he declares his faithfulness, and he stands alone, as it were. Verse 8 of chapter 3, On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of Yahweh, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, even to Israel his sin. This is Micah saying, if I have to stand alone, I will preach against sin and I will warn against judgment. Micah ends this section declaring that Jerusalem, Zion, verse 12, will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And that's exactly what happened in 586 B.C. about a century later when Nebuchadnezzar invaded for the third time and this time completely destroyed Jerusalem. But Israel was to have hope because all of a sudden we're transported to a future day. It's a day that hasn't happened yet even from our perspective. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Jerusalem is going to be the center of the world. Verse 1, Now it will be that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and the people will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may instruct us from his ways and that we may walk in his paths for from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. In contrast to the destruction of Jerusalem in chapter 3, Zion now is the spiritual capital of all the nations. And notice that the Lord is now personally and physically in Jerusalem, teaching the people he was going to bring peace to the earth. No more war. He'll decide all disputes between nations. 
Meaning, by the way, that Messiah is reigning on the earth when there are still sinners, meaning there is an intermediate kingdom between now and the final state after all sin has been finally judged. This is going to be a time of joy, of prosperity. Verse 4, And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them tremble, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. Verses four, six through seven, rather, those that the Lord afflicted will be drawn back. They'll be brought back, meaning that the true believers of all the ages who suffered because of their countrymen being unfaithful will be returned. And in fact, verse seven says, they're the new Israel. Chapter four, verse seven, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a mighty nation and Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, yes, they're going to Babylon. But at the end of verse 10, there you will be delivered. There Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And many would say, well, that was fulfilled when the exiles returned, but there was less than 50,000 of them that returned. This was not uh, a, the setting up of a great kingdom. But it does tell us that there can be real excitement about the future kingdom and with Messiah reigning physically. In verses 11 through 13, we see encouragement that Jews, that while at the moment many nations have been assembled against you, just like is happening today, nevertheless, in verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of Yahweh. They do not understand his counsel, for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. And how is God going to bring about this plan? It will happen through Messiah King. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Tell us of the the plight of Judah. But her hope is that a king will be born in Bethlehem and that he'll deliver her from all her enemies. And now now Israel is like refreshing water to all of the world. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from Yahweh, like showers on vegetation which do not hope for man or wait for the sons of men. And no more will Israel be pushed around. No more will Israel be oppressed. Verse 8, Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which, if it passes through, tramples down and tears, and there's none to deliver. And Messiah King will triumph. In verse 9, Your hand will be raised up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be cut off. So Judah's punishment and future restoration after the presentation of the coming messianic kingdom brings us now to the third section and it goes back to negative. Chapter 6 and 7 we could call God's indictment and then promises. God's indictment and then his promises. In the earlier indictments, the, the accusations, the leaders of Israel, the leadership, the elite, they're under God's conviction. But now God addresses the citizens. They're not escaping this judgment either. They're accountable to God as well. And once again, we enter the courtroom. Chapter 6, verse 1. Listen now to what Yahweh is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills raise. Listen to your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the case of Yahweh and you enduring foundations of the earth because Yahweh has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will reprove. God calls his first witness. It's himself. 
In verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The people had fallen into a hollow religiosity which didn't live itself out in holiness, didn't live itself out in love. That's what would have happened in the case of true, genuine, saving, repentant faith. And he condemns the people thinking that they're accepted by God because of their countless sacrifices. And he reminds them about what he said about true faith. Chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And so because Israel... Even their very citizens have rejected God's ways. In verses 9 through 16, judgment is issued. And it's summarized in verse 13 of chapter 6. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. And so, of course, as a prophet of God, the, the, the preacher that is proclaiming these things, Micah is stricken by this. He's, he's just, just horrified that this is going to happen to his people And he prays a prayer of lament. Chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which my soul desires. The Holy One has perished from the land and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. What's Micah saying here? He's saying, as I go door to door, I can't find one family who's serving God. There are no more holy families. And he's just crushed by this. But he ends with hope. In verse 7. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And the rest of the book ends on the high point of Micah's confidence in the Lord. Chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, Micah tells Israel's enemies that someday God's people will be vindicated. Verses 11 through 13, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the boundaries of Israel will be extended far out beyond what they've ever been in history In verses 14 through 17, the nations will fear Messiah. Verse 17, they will lick the dust like a serpent, like crawling things of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to Yahweh our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. And Micah then ends on this high glorious note of praising the kindness and the grace and the goodness of of God, and he tells what God does with the sins of the repentant. Verse 18, Who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and loving kindness to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. Micah 5, verse 2, was not parachuted in randomly into the middle of a book 
without being connected to that context. Now we fix our eyes on that particular situation in Micah 5. The situation which leads Micah to issue this oracle of the hope of the coming Messiah, Micah 5, verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Jerusalem, the daughter or city of troops, is called to arms. The the city is surrounded. It's under siege. Now, there's only two choices about what situation that Micah is speaking of here. Either it's the coming siege over a century later of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586, still well over 100 years away, or, and this is the better choice, the situation which Micah himself saw happen. He witnessed it, and it's referenced later on in verse 5. The year is 701 B.C. The event is recorded in Isaiah 36 and 37, also in 2 Kings 18 and 19, and in 2 Chronicles 32, Assyria's king Sennacherib has reached the Palestine area trying to suppress a general rebellion. And like Micah, verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, Isaiah refers three times in Isaiah 10 to Assyria as the rod that will strike Judah. As the Assyrians swept down from the north, city after city was taken or surrendered. Assyria had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel 21 years earlier. The last stronghold, the last fortress between Jerusalem and the Assyrian army was the fortress city of Achish, uh, Lachish, rather, 29 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Now remember, Micah 1.13, Lachish is listed in the cities for coming judgment. Just in recent years, archaeologists have found a mass grave at Lachish where the Assyrians buried over 1,500 Jews that they killed. And by now, Sennacherib has taken 46 cities in the area. They've been deporting citizens to Assyria already. When Sennacherib was at Lachish conquering and killing King Hezekiah of Judah, he, he pulls out all the stops. He sent from Jerusalem political envoys to offer apologies for his rebellion against Assyria. He sent all the treasures of Jerusalem in tribute. He sent everything he had as a a token of his submission to the king of Assyria. In the meantime, King Hezekiah had been preparing for the expected attack by digging the now famous Hezekiah's tunnel to bring water from the outside and minimize the water the invading army could get. But Hezekiah sent him everything he had. He, he basically said, all that we have is yours. But Sennacherib said, that's not enough. Sennacherib wanted unconditional surrender and he wanted the death of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was completely cut off. He's totally isolated now. Sennacherib decided to send his army of almost 200,000 men to Jerusalem anyway and as the king's spokesman, he sent the Rabshakeh, means the, the field commander. The Rabshakeh, or the field commander, stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field to meet Hezekiah's representatives. And this is recorded in Isaiah 36. And here the field commander makes two speeches in front of these officials and the soldiers who were manning Jerusalem's wall. And these speeches were intended to intimidate Jerusalem into total surrender. It wasn't just to the officials, it was to all the people. They were intended to be a slap in the face of Hezekiah, the king or the judge of Israel. 
Isaiah 36 records, Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. There's a surprise. The Assyrian speaking Hebrew to the people. That'll be unnerving to them. Thus says the king, meaning the king of Assyria, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. And do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me and each eat of his vine and eat of his fig tree and drink of the waters of his own cistern. Did you catch that? The same promises God makes to a faithful Israel. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And where, when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that Yahweh would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? This is arrogant. Rabshakeh is basically saying none of the gods of this whole area have been successful Why would you think your God will be? Now, the account of this situation by Isaiah focuses on the immediate situation and the the genuine dilemma that King Hezekiah was in. Judah was nationally corrupt, but Hezekiah, generally speaking, was a good and faithful king. He did his best to follow the Lord. But Micah, he takes his focus far beyond just that current situation. He looks to far ahead in the future to the ultimate salvation of Israel, the ultimate solution for Israel and for the whole world. And from verse 1 where he says, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, meaning Hezekiah, and now Micah just transports us to the future, to the coming of Messiah. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. Now you know the context of Micah 5.2. These elements, this passage rather deals with elements both of first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So I'd like to just show you some details about the king of Israel, the coming king of Israel. The first specific detail we'll call the king's place. The king's place, the place of his birth, his human origin. Micah gives a contrast to the seemingly hopeless situation as the armies of Sennacherib have surrounded Jerusalem with this conjunction. But as for you, Micah personifies Bethlehem as if it's a person. Bethlehem, interestingly, it's a paradox of sorts. Compared to Jerusalem, it's humble, it's nondescript, it truly is a little town. And yet, from that little town, the age of Messiah is launched. Bethlehem is both exalted and scarred in the history of Israel. Jacob, the son of Isaac, son of Abraham, had one true love in his life, his beloved Rachel. Rachel was taken from him early as she gave birth to their second son, And so Jacob buried Rachel at Bethlehem. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied of a time of 
tremendous grief for Bethlehem, picturing Rachel grieving her own children. In Jeremiah 31, 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And of course, this prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, when King Herod, in a desperate search to murder the baby Jesus, murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. During the time of the judges, after the conquest of Canaan and beginning the era of the kings, or before the era of the kings would begin, rather, Israel repeatedly descended into immorality and debauchery and idolatry, and Bethlehem wasn't spared. Judges 19 records a terrible incident in Bethlehem in which a man's concubine was raped by men from the tribe of Benjamin, and she's so badly injured that she died. And this incident ultimately started a civil war between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of Israel and it resulted in the deaths of over 40,000 men of Israel and 40,000 men of Benjamin, almost 100,000 men, all because of immorality in Bethlehem. But here's the paradox. At exactly the same time period, in Bethlehem, the city of paradoxes, one of the most beautiful stories in all the Bible unfolds. A, a picture of redemption as illustrated by Bethlehem. Because it was in Bethlehem that the young Moabite widow in desperate straits, Ruth, she came and she's graciously taken in, taken in by a, a faithful, God-fearing, law-keeping man named Boaz. Their family is blessed. Their family acts as a, as a beacon of hope and light as to what Israel could be like if she would just obey the Lord. And in fact, Boaz and Ruth would become the great-grandparents of one who would set Israel on a straight course of the Lord's blessing, King David. And so because Boaz made his family home in Bethlehem, as did his son Obed and his grandson Jesse and Jesse's youngest son David, that would become the nickname of Bethlehem. It's still today. It's still called the city of David. And it would be to David of Bethlehem that God would give his covenant to have a ruler from the line of David beyond the throne of Israel forever. And so Bethlehem is not chosen at random to be the place of the king. It was the birthplace of David and to make ultimately clear who David's heir to the throne was to be. Bethlehem would be the birthplace of what Jesus was often nicknamed, he was often called the son of David, born in the city of David. Isn't it marvelous that we have a God who so perfectly orchestrates the events of redemptive history that he leaves no doubt as to his sovereignty over all things? I mean, God orchestrated the birth of David by bringing a no-account Moabite woman who in God's providence is taken in and has her whole life restarted in the house of Boaz, 700 years before the fact, God tells us through Micah that the son of David, the savior of the world, will be born in Bethlehem, and it happens. How did it happen? Just before Jesus was born, as we read earlier in Luke 2, now it happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. I love that. Now it happened. In other words, God caused it. And so Joseph and Mary had to get going to Joseph's ancestral home, Bethlehem. By the way, we see from Scripture that God is totally, completely sovereign. I think it's a little ridiculous to try to remove God's sovereignty 
when it comes to our salvation. That somehow, all of a sudden, God has orchestrated all the events of Christ's birth to be born exactly in the right place, exactly at the right time. Uh, but when it came to you and your salvation, God's hands off. Like, he doesn't mess with that. He's just hoping that you'll choose him. No, you didn't choose God. God chose you. And just as certainly as God passed over David's brothers and chose him as king, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 That as someday you walk the streets of New Jerusalem, as someday you marvel at the wonders of the new earth and new heaven, as you fellowship with the angels and with one another for all eternity, as all the nations of the new earth bring their tribute and love and worship and honor to God enthroned in New Jerusalem, it will always be because God chose you we forever give him thanks. God chose the birthplace of David. God chose the birthplace of Jesus. And God chose the spiritual birth time and place of you and of me. That's the king's place. There's a second specific detail we'll call the king's progress. The king's progress. Micah doesn't just address Bethlehem. But as it were, he uses Bethlehem's whole name. That's never a random occurrence. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is a district in Judah where Bethlehem is, where it's located. It means fruitful. It has a rich semantic flavor to it related to the coming of the Messiah. In the account of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 12 says, Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. Isaiah prophesied of Messiah in Isaiah 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And so at first, the Lord Jesus is pictured as a shoot, just a little tiny offshoot from an ancient family, the the stump of Jesse in other translations. He starts in a humble place, coming merely as a baby. And now Micah characterizes Bethlehem as being too little to be among the clans of Judah. A more wooden translation would say, insignificant with regard to its existence among the clans of Judah. In other words, it's just, oh, there's Bethlehem. It's nothing. And from the most insignificant of the clans of Judah, God chooses the most insignificant son, You may recall from 1 Samuel 16 that the prophet Samuel was sent by God to choose the true king of Israel and God rejected King Saul and God sent Samuel to the family of Jesse and Jesse presented to Samuel seven sons and Samuel rejected all of them. The eighth son of Jesse was so insignificant in the family in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking that Jesse didn't even bother getting him. He's like, I've got... I got seven boys. Oh yeah, well, I got eight, I guess. And yet God chose the most insignificant. He chose David. And he promised David that he would build a house for God's name and establish his throne forever. But now that Jesus comes, we get an update. Jesus now comes to, be, to fulfill that promise of God and Matthew's gospel gives an update of Micah 5, verse 2, breaking news of the reversal of fortunes, of a turning tide, of a new era for Bethlehem. 
Micah 5.2 says that Bethlehem is too little, too insignificant to even be considered among the clans of Judah. Matthew's gospel gives an update, though, in proclaiming the birthplace of Christ. Matthew loosely cites Micah 5, verse 2, and he updates the new situation. Matthew 2, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. See, when Micah 5, 2 was written, it was true that Bethlehem was a no-account town. But that changed with the birth of Christ. Matthew would have written originally to a Jewish audience. They would have known the wording of the original text and they would have recognized Matthew's addition. This was not a mistake in quoting the scripture, but this was an interpretive explanation that the little shoot out of the stump of Jesse would grow in greatness. And we see this explained in the next specific detail about the king, the king's priority. The third detail, the king's priority. The next phrase in verse 2 says, From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Oh, this is a huge theological concept, and, and I don't want you to miss this. That the coming of Christ was first and foremost for God the Father. It was for Him. Now, we could survey the history of King Jesus in about one minute. The world falls into sin. God will send a Savior, Genesis 3. The Savior will be God in the flesh, Job 19. The Savior would be born in Bethlehem, our text here. The Savior will die for the sins of all who have placed their faith in Him, Isaiah 53. The Savior will be raised and ascend into heaven as the Holy Spirit gathers kingdom citizens during the time of Israel's continued rebellion. That's the time we're in right now. The Savior King will return. He'll redeem Israel and gather His peoples from all nations together. Zechariah 12 and 14. The Savior will reign for a thousand years while Satan is bound. Satan will be loosed and one last rebellion will take place. Quickly put down by Christ. All evil, all wickedness will be dealt with from every age. Creation will be purified and readied for the final state in which all the saved of all the ages will be gathered on new earth and the priority of Christ all this time. Genesis 3 all the way to a future day. The priority of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. When He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The coming of Jesus Christ. For from you will go forth for me. The coming of Jesus Christ is for the Father. That's why Micah says that the coming of a ruler is for God the Father. And the seat of Messiah's government during the time of His reign on earth will be Israel, to be ruler in Israel. There's a fourth specific detail about the king, the king's power. The king's power. In verse 3, Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in childbirth has born a child. Then the remainder of his sons will return to the sons of Israel. Verses 2 and 3 put together the two advents of Christ. 
And this is familiar to us. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's the first coming. The government will be on the shoulders. That's the second coming. Isaiah 61, 1, in the first half of 2, the Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. That's the first coming of Christ. The end of verse 2 of Isaiah 61, to bring the day of vengeance of our God. That's the second coming. And so Micah 5, 3 has this reference, therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in childbirth has born a child, then the remainder of his brothers will return to the sons of Israel. First two lines, first coming, second two lines, second coming. Verse three says Jesus will give them up. Jesus turned away from Israel as a nation when they crucified him, but only for a time. He would be until she who is in labor has given birth the consummation of God's redemptive plan. Zechariah 12.10 records that Israel will turn to the Savior whom they have pierced. And then the remainder of his brothers, all the Jews who would exercise saving faith in Christ, will return. Same Hebrew, Hebrew word speaking of repentance, of conversion. And the power of the king will turn his own people back to him. Verse 4, and he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh as God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth and this one will be peace. Did you catch the David-like imagery here? David was the shepherd who became king. Jesus is the king who becomes the great shepherd. But he's no simple or nondescript shepherd. He will rule in the strength of Yahweh and the majesty of God. Israel will be secure because Christ will be great to the ends of the earth. And the theocracy of the greatest magnitude now happens. A divine monarchy with Christ on the throne of Israel, the seat of power in all the earth. And verse 5 continues, When the Assyrian enters our land, when he treads on our citadels, Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men and they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Then he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he enters our land and when he treads within our borders. Micah is using a figure of speech. It's called a synecdoche. You don't have to worry about that. But it means where a part of something represents the whole. One piece of the pie represents the whole pie as it were. The original reader would be familiar with Assyria. At this time, the Assyrians are the bad guys. But Assyria now becomes representative of Messiah's triumph over all the nations that would come against him. This is recorded in Revelation 16 at the end of the Great Tribulation when the return of Christ is imminent and the nations know he's coming. Revelation 6 says this, demonic spirits are now going to fool the kings of the earth. Revelation 16, 14 through 16 says that the kings will be fooled by these spirits, these demons, and they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And Micah says here that God will raise up seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Zechariah 14, 5 says that when Christ returns, then Yahweh my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And Revelation 9 confirms with all this gets all tied together That this is the army of God consisting of his angels and his resurrected saints of this age ready to follow their commander and king. What power, what might, what supremacy. You see how quickly we go from a babe in Bethlehem to a king conquering the world. 
in the matter of a half page of verses. The king's place, his progress, his priority, his power. Let me give you one final specific detail about the coming king. The king's permanence. The king's permanence. I I hope this gives you comfort like it's given me. Jesus Christ is the one, in verse 2, whose goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. This is a great translation. His goings forth. Other translation says his coming forth. Goings forth is, is better. It's actually a plural verb that means his goings out. Plural. Now wait a minute. From everlasting, from the beginning of time, Jesus has been going out? What does that mean? When has the second member of the Trinity gone out, so to speak? Well, there was the creation. Colossians 1.16 says, For in Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were, have been created through Him and for Him. There are the numerous physical manifestations of God on the earth, often referred to as the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. He appeared to Abraham, to Hagar, to Samson's parents, to Gideon. About a dozen and a half places in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is recorded as appearing. And yes, speaking of Hezekiah, 701 B.C., Sennacherib's Assyrian army 185,000 soldiers besieging Israel. There is, of course, Isaiah 37, 36. Then the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And the men arose early in the morning, and behold, all of them were dead bodies. You see, Jesus coming to earth as a baby is not his first time here. It wasn't his first time. He's been around the whole time. But now he comes permanently as a human being who is fully God. And by the way, not only is he called the shoot of Jesse, the, the little branch, the little tiny twig coming from Jesse in his humanity, Isaiah 11.10 calls him the root of Jesse, the one who made Jesse, the one who made all of humanity, the one who made all things. What does this tell us about Christ and His permanence? It tells us that the Son of God has always been. He is eternal. He has always existed. He is the one who is from the ancient days. That's a Hebrew way of saying from eternity past. Or put it this way, God proclaims in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Jesus proclaims in Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So Jesus is permanent. He will rule the world. And to be honest with you, whether you believe that or not is irrelevant. He will rule the world. There's only one question left to answer then. Jesus said it this way in Matthew twelve thirty: He who is not with me is against me. So the simple question to answer is, whose side are you on? There's only two sides. The Assyrian, so to speak, and Christ's. Bethlehem today is as much a paradox as it was in biblical times. The church of the nativity, built on the supposed spot of Jesus' birth, 
is a disgusting Catholic shrine hijacking the gospel of Jesus Christ into a mystical works-based religion of desperation. Bethlehem itself, even this very day, is a hotbed of conflict between Palestinians and Jews, certainly today more so than in many years past. But someday Christ will return. And someday he will secure his reign on earth. And I think it's a reasonable guess that he has some special plans for Bethlehem. Some special plans for his birthplace. Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. I suppose someday we may have to change the hymn from O little town of Bethlehem to O glorious gateway of the entrance of God into the world. You know, Jesus' birth and his death occurred about four and a half miles away from each other. In all of his life, he never left an area that you could walk to. His reason for coming the first time was to offer himself, as Peter said in Acts 2, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God to pay the penalty for sin for all who would receive him by faith. You see, you must take advantage of his first coming in order to participate in his second coming. The two are vitally connected. You cannot separate one from the other. My prayer for all of you and for myself is that our thoughts, as they're drawn toward the meaning of this season, that you won't be restricted by the cultural, usual, stereotypical thoughts merely of Jesus as a baby. The baby grew up, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. Even now he is seated at the right hand of the Father until that day when he girds himself for battle and prepares to return to the world that rejected him. You see, the prophecy of Bethlehem in Micah 5 2 takes us very quickly from the baby in the manger to the king on his throne. And we must always keep that connection. Let's pray together. Father, as we mentioned, our prayers that our thoughts, as we're drawn toward the meaning of this season, that we won't be restricted to just the, the stereotypical thoughts that we're, we're often fed. Micah 5 verse 2 wasn't placed completely without a context. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is the singular hope for the world that as he went to the cross and was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and even now intercedes for all who would believe on him, that there will be a day when he is no longer seated at your right hand, but he stands and he girds himself for battle and mounts the white horse of battle to return to the earth which rejected him and to take back what is rightly his. And someday Bethlehem will be purified. What a glorious time that will be when the little town of Bethlehem is lifted up as the glorious place that our King came. I pray for all of us, Lord, during this Christmas season that our thoughts are drawn toward the miracle of the cross of Christ that as Jesus was first placed in a wooden manger, 
Ultimately, he would be placed on a wooden cross. May we always connect those events because of the salvation which you have so richly given to us. We thank you and we praise you all for the sake of the King who has come and will come again, Jesus Christ. Amen.